Hello and welcome to the third episode of The Lion's Share, a podcast series by the PP Society at King's College London. This episode serves as a follow-up to the discussion we had in the last episode about contract sex, but with perspective from lived experience. With us, we have Charlotte, a representative from the English Collective of Prostitutes, hereafter referred to as the ECP. Charlotte and I had a discussion about what the ECP does, arguments for and against, the decriminalisation of sex work, the role of feminism, mainstream media, and the importance of not getting lost in ideology. It's important to note that our discussion revolves mainly around women sex workers, as they make up the ECP network and are broadly the main supplies of sex work within the industry as a whole, meaning women also disproportionately bear the brunt of policies that criminalise sex work. Male sex workers were not purposelessly excluded, and there are organisations specifically tailored to their struggles. We're excited to have you joining us here at the Lions Share. Hi. Hi. Um, are you Charlotte? Yeah. Sorry, the name doesn't match. I'm using my friend's laptop. Don't worry. Um, it's perfect. Thanks so much for agreeing to speak to me. Hope you're doing okay um, with everything going on. Um, but I guess the first thing I wanted to ask was um, more specifically what ECP does, um, who they work for or who, who they provide services for and what kind of services they provide? Yeah, so the ECP, the English Collective for Prostitutes, uh, we started in 1975 uh, and basically our core demands, we are a campaigning organization and our core demands are the decriminalization of sex work and money in women's hands. So we, uh, we work with women who not only work indoors, but on the street, and we are one of the few campaigning organizations to do so. And uh, we are an international network. So we have sister organizations in Empower, uh, in Thailand called Empower, but also in the US, the US Prostitutes Collective. So uh, we are not a service per se, in the sense that there are a lot of, for example, sex worker services around the UK that, for example, you know, focus on sexual health or focus on, for example, giving um, condoms and wellness services and things like that. But the ECP is a self-help organization to which we are a network of sex worker and sex worker allies to which we, we help each other through our experiences. So we handle casework, but the women that we help are at the center of their own case and fighting their own cases. So we are not saying that, you know, we are lawyers or specialists in any sense, but we're very rich in experience in helping women who have been in our position, who have gone through similar things through their situations as well. But mainly we are, we don't describe ourselves as a sex work service. We are uh, mainly a campaigning organization. And we are based in uh, Crossroads Women's Center in Kentish Town um, and with, with a lot of other um, organizations at the center as well. But of course, with COVID, the center's closed at the moment. So we're currently just all working remotely. Um, I was just wondering, actually, you mentioned that you're one of the few organizations that um, explicitly works also with women who work on the streets. Does, is that because that presents additional challenges or difficulties? So firstly, the women that work on the street are usually um, the most destitute of women. Uh, and that I think it's number one, they're not very visible, but also that they are really the women that, um, so working on the street is, is probably the, the least safe of all the sex work options. And people who only have access to that are usually, um, you know, women 
who are who are destitute women basically and that that has formed kind of the women in our network because because we are a grassroots organization we kind of not say have access but our network has just been um, formed through these women and we have a lot of women in our network who who also work on the streets and they are of course they are a lot less visible uh and especially i mean i think if you look in the media um a lot of um, sex workers who are out in the media, for example, uh, work indoors or in brothels or, or stuff like that because they are able to show their faces to the media, essentially. But I think a lot of people who work on the street, for example, their mothers or they have um, precarious immigration statuses uh, and, other, and other circumstances that lead them to uh, only have access to work on the streets. So not, not a lot of organizations do have... Um, have us focus in working uh working with women who who work on the street okay thank you um the main argument that comes up very very frequently when sex work is discussed one could argue it comes from um an intuition to protect people but a lot of people probably deem it paternalistic is this idea that sex workers must be coerced or exploit or be exploited in order to be working in the sex work industry and that they need they need to be saved um, and that's why we keep it um de- we keep it criminalized to protect sex workers um or vulnerable people what would you say to that argument i mean firstly you are conflating sex work with trafficking when in reality um most sex workers are mothers who just want to earn a living for their children and i think that is the argument that a lot of I, I would say mainstream feminists have in the sense that, oh, they say that sex work is inherently exploitative and this or that. But at the same time, you must realize that I think a lot of those debates are very highly ideological and are not really based on the experiences on a vast amount of sex workers who are unable to come up with their stories because of stigma. That if you look at, for example, everybody when when you talk about a sex trade, everybody talks about supply and demand, and the entire argument for the Nordic model, which is the criminalization of clients, is that uh, is that oh, if we criminalize clients, that we will shrink the demand and there won't be sex work. But that's an entirely wrong way of uh, of of conceiving this entire situation because people don't realize that women go into sex work because of money full stop and the pandemic has made it has made this infinitely more clear in a sense that when more people are pushed into poverty women would want would need and want to f- feed their families and so they would go into sex work to be able to financially to to you know have financial well-being for themselves and their families and most sex workers are mothers and that if you look at the demand and supply we shouldn't think of you know the the demand coming from from clients it's really if you if you think about it it's really um, the n- demand is coming from women who want to earn money for their families and are pushed out of other forms of, of work, for example, because of discrimination, because of racism, because of low wages, uh, and et cetera, et cetera. So if you, th- if you think about it like that, that really the core of why people go into sex work is, is, is really just to be able to earn a living for themselves and their families, then your entire conception of, you know, everybody being forced into it, I mean, the argument mainly just falls apart. 
And a lot of uh, campaigning organizations, I mean, not a lot, all of the sex worker-led campaigning organizations around the world, we are strongly against all types of criminalization. We are strongly for decriminalization. And that's kind of something that's been consistent across the board. And I would say all the rhetoric about saving women out of, of prostitution or out of sex work, I mean, it's, it sounds great. People can very easily jump on that. But at the same time, pe- I think they are framing it entirely the wrong way. Because with criminalization, for example, if you ha- get a caution for loitering and soliciting, for example, a form of criminalization in itself, it stays on your record. And if you want to leave prostitution for another job and because of feminized labor, usually, you know, you're working, you're a woman and you're working with children or in a care kind of um, caring kind of job. When it comes out on a DBS check, you know, you're barred from those kind of professions forever. So it's kind of a lose-lose situation to which criminalization, it's not, it, it hinders people from exiting if exiting the industry if and when they want to. Yeah. What you mentioned actually about this argument coming from the, the mainstream radical feminist perspective is kind of what I wanted to move on to next. So I guess historically, as you said, the feminist movement, and even now, obviously, uh, the feminist movement plays this role of kind of hindering sex, sex work activism or pro-sex work decriminalization. Uh, what would you say in an ideal world, even just in your opinion, what role would feminism and the feminist movement play in sex work activism and decriminalization? I mean, that is the thing. I think people don't realize that the mainstream feminism now has really slowed the campaign for decriminalization because they are really obsessed in their, I don't know, realm of ideology. And this is, and and they're trying to create a moral panic, even like, you know, not even, a lot of mainstream feminists, but also the media, politicians, etc. Um, and th- this is the entire, you know, thing behind a Nordic model that that everybody is trying to create a moral panic around sex work when it's actually just a consensual, you know, transaction um, between two people. And if you look at, for example, the feminized labor in general. I don't think sex sex work is uniquely exploitative. I think I think the ECP did a piece of research uh, a, f- a couple of years ago now. It's called um, "What's What's a Nice Girl Like You Doing in a Job Like This," and basically we compared um, sex work to a lot of other kind of like uh, female uh, dominated professions. So, for example, midwife, uh, carer, um, teacher, for example, and we realized that the amount of money you make per hour for sex workers is much higher than the rest but at the same time that in the rest of the jobs like in waitressing for example even midwifery you see the same kind of harassment and you see the same kind of um exploitation it's just that that exploitation harassment for example is not uniquely it's not unique to sex work itself the only difference uh, of sex work as a profession to the rest of them is that sex workers don't get the same kind of protections and the same kind of labor laws that um, yeah that a lot of people that, that a lot of other kind of professions have so you we cannot you know look at sex work as if it's uniquely exploitative in any way but I think for going back to your question I think we need to not get carried away 
in ideology a lot of the time and to really listen to the voices of the women that it impacts because I think a lot of people, there's a destroyed in a lot of people that a lot of mainstream feminism nowadays has really has really done a lot of harm to to sex workers in the industry. For example, people who are fighting for the Nordic model to be implemented in the UK, there was an attempt in Parliament a, a, a little earlier this year. They don't realize that um, in places where the Nordic model is implemented. Number one, incidents of violence has increased against sex workers and they have been reported to feel less safe and they're less incentivized to approach the police when they are a victim of violence. And these are empirical truths. And I think that when people dwell on the, the, the realm of, of ideology, people really forget um, the importance of the lived experience of, of women and especially destitute women. And I think when we talk about um, and when we talk about sex work and we talk about decriminalization, we must realize that decriminalization is not some kind of utopian fantasy, that it has already been implemented in New Zealand and parts of Australia, and it has been implemented for, I think, over 15 years now, I think since, since 2003, and that when it was implemented there, you know, it didn't go into... New Zealand didn't turn into some kind of hedonistic parad like paradise to which um, more women entered sex work or, or anything like that. That it that the policy has been implemented in New Zealand. Women have uh, come forth to say they feel more safe in going to the police. They have access to um, health and safety rights. Num the number of um, sex work hasn't increased. It's just that people are now more safe to work there. And that it has been a system, I mean, the New Zealand system is not perfect. I think it still excludes uh, certain immigrants, but it has been there and has worked for a long period of time. So the people that are so vehemently against decriminalization root their, I don't know, base their ideas on, on really not listening to the people that these policies impact most. When we talk about impact, we're talking about you know, an increased policing, we're talking about incarceration, we're talking about cautions, we're talking about fines, we're talking about, you know, a situation of life and death, especially when it comes to poverty, especially in a pandemic. Yeah. Thanks so much. That was brilliant. Um, for one, just really briefly, because obviously a lot of the people maybe who will be listening to this might not be accustomed with what the Nordic model is and what it entails. Could you just briefly kind of um, discuss what it is and why it is that women and sex workers as a whole might feel more uh, in danger and more threatened by that system? Okay, so I mean, I can go through all the, um, the different kind of um, sex work policy models. So first we have the Nordic model to which um, it criminalizes the client. So it makes it illegal to buy sex. So as, as, as per the name, it's very apparent um, in a lot of Nordic countries. And uh, why this is not what we want is because if you criminalize any part of the system, it literally drives it further underground. So for example, if the client knows they're criminalized and you're working on the street, for example, then you have less time to negotiate and you have, you have less time to kind of, um, before you have to hop in the car and that uh, you may take on clients that 
you know, you may trust less. And that, that that's where the vulnerability comes in. And that's where you are more susceptible to violence because criminalizing any part part of the system drives it further underground. And as uh, we have said before, uh, that this is an entirely flawed idea of how to kind of tackle the problem of prostitution to which, oh, if we criminalize the clients that it would supposedly drive down the demand and thus it will get, it will you know lower the rate of prostitution. When in reality, you are not doing that. You are actually just making the entire situation less safe for the women who work in it. And another argument against uh, the Nordic model is that, for example, if a client is a witness to a crime against a sex worker, then they are also disincentivized to approach the police uh, to report the violence as well. And uh, yeah, so and, and from what I covered already before, that this is entirely flawed conception of what drives sex work, that if you want to kind of so-called fix the problem of sex work or hint or, or stop more women from going to sex work, it shouldn't, you shouldn't be intervening on, on the client side. You should, really should be tackling poverty because that's the thing that's driving uh, women into sex work in the first place. And that I think these kind of like moral panics that have been constructed really drive people, drive their attention away from the fact that that is the core reason why a lot of women go into the industry in the first place. And they try to, you know, in a very kind of mainstream feminist sense, kind of try to take down the, the man, the client, when, it, when in reality, our stance is that it's a consensual transaction, nothing wrong on their part. It's just on, on, on the client's part. We just want to be able to do it and do it safely. So, that, so that's an audit model, um, which they have been trying to push, but we have also been trying to push them, push, push back on it. Um, the second one would be legalization. So decriminalization and legalization are two very different things. So legalization is a system that is uh, very famously in the Netherlands. And basically it, it's the, you know, archetypal uh, ladies in the windows and stuff like that, where they have kind of legalized um, sex work districts. And why we do not want that is because when you have a legalized system, it means that women, for example, have to register with the state to be able to work there. You have to hand over your details. But it essentially also creates a two-tiered system to which there will be women who probably have more secure immigration statuses, for example, who work um, in the legal framework. And there will be lots of people who work outside it and they are then exempt from all of that kind of protections you have. And that would probably be more likely to be, for example, women of color, trans women, uh, people with precarious immigration statuses. And so decriminalization is different from legalization in that sense. And it's a, quite a common misconception that a lot of people have. And so decriminalization is really when you take out all the kind of uh, criminalizing laws. And what we have in the UK now is partial criminalization to which um, prostitution is not illegal per se but that uh, a lot of activities around it, for example, soliciting is illegal, and that um, working in, in a, indoors with another person is illegal. And that is something that we've also been trying to push back on because um, a lot of, a lot of uh, women uh, work together indoors for safety and they are not controlling each other. They can be just uh, working indoors, not even with another sex worker. It could be a maid, it could be a receptionist, 
but um, if you're not alone in the flat, if you if a potential client turns you know violence towards you, you have somebody else there uh, to to help you and to help you stay safe. But what had been ha what is happening now is that with a lot of cases we've we've been seeing. What the current prosecution has been doing is basically arresting, raiding these premises and arresting um, these women for controlling each other. So it, it comes from the entire thing in which, you know, everybody's being pimped or that it's always exploitation when you work together indoors, when in reality, people are just walking indoors to keep each other safe and they turn out to get charged for managing each other. I think there was a case in our network in which it wasn't even another sex worker. It was... A cleaner and they both got charged with managing or controlling each other when there was no evidence of it. Thank you very much for that breakdown. Um, I think another question that I had has to do I guess more with the current climate. It feels like to some extent um, sex work is entering mainstream discussion um, and many relatively privileged people, especially young people, are sporadically providing services of a sexual nature that, I mean, I guess could be considered sex work, um, such as sending pictures or going on paid dates. And more recently, we've also seen celebrities like Bella Thorne occupying a very prominently space on OnlyFans. Even in your own opinion, to what extent can we describe these people as sex workers? And how do they affect the sex work activism that ECP, like organizations like ECP take part in? So, I mean, I think I'll start by, you know, saying that because of the pandemic, we have seen a big shift uh, to online sex work. But at the same time, we also must remember that, um, I mean, we must remember that not everything was fine before the pandemic, that because of, for example, hostile immigration environments, austerity benefit cuts, that was really driving a lot of women into sex work to start with, just that now the circumstances have slightly changed and that a lot of people are moving online. But at the same time, we also must remember that the most destitute of women are the people who are still working on the streets and who have to, and who, for example, who have no access to online work or they have kids so that they can't do, you know, camming work at home or something like that to which um, the most destitute women are still walking on the streets and they have to choose between, you know, their health and being able to feed their family. But I say, I would say the movement on to online platforms, it, it also has its own set of problems, you know, with regards to privacy issues and revenge porn. And we have seen that a lot coming in, um, especially from our Twitter pages, while people stealing OnlyFans content and things like that. And that I think um, sex worker-led organizations are also trying to grapple with how um, how we're trying to deal with this. And I think a lot of um, other sex work services, like for example, National Ugly Mugs, um, what they do is that when sex online sex workers realize that you know their content has been stolen or they've been you know duped by someone, that they share the contact of the person that that did that to them and spread the word around so that everybody is cautious. So it's kind of like, that's how the community is trying to protect itself um, with the kind of like new digital challenges. But at the same time, um, I would say that, I would say that um, we don't, as an organization, we don't really care about the label of whether they are sex worker or whether they're not. It's just that, it's just that I think, especially now, um, 
especially young people, but also a lot of people in general. I know like, you know, there are also a few older women who do um, kind of online stuff on our network that they are just finding more ways to which we can just earn our keep and earn our keep, especially in, in these situations to which it's not safe to meet other people. I wouldn't, and, and that there have been a lot of um, people with an online presence who have helped with our movement, especially when, when it comes to going online, because now you can't um, organize as, as much in person anymore. Um, and I would say that, yeah, we, we, we don't really um, care about the labels of like whether you're a sex worker or, or, or not. I mean, as if you want to label yourself one, sure. But I think the bigger issue in this is also to realize that um, a hierarchy within sex work also exists. And that, yes, a lot of people have um, access to online work and that it's, it's taken so many forms, like, you know, for example, sugar babying and, and selling, you know, your, your stuff online and OnlyFans and canning. But at the same time, that as a as a grassroots organization we must also realize that a lot of people don't have access to it and I, I think people would label it the hierarchy in which there are people who can you know have a certain privilege of of doing this work online and and all power to them if, if that's you know what lets them earn their keep but there are also a lot of women who are outside that and i think those sex workers especially online who are doing these things like they are the most visible and this goes back into to my previous point again about how that's why we work with women on the streets because they are often the the most difficult to account for and um and to to reach out to and usually that they're, they're the women who are really uh, most most vulnerable so i guess in terms of just some final thoughts if there's anything that you'd like to share with people in general that you think that people should know about or think about more and especially with regards to perhaps how the media depicts sex work and actually also what you were mentioning before about the public, the general public being so quick to dub prostitution and sex work a problem, like this, this moral panic that you talk about. How can we start to break down these barriers and have more candid open conversations that can help sex workers in their activism? It's really to to focus on the fact that the root cause of a lot of, uh, the root cause of sex work is really, is really poverty. And that I think even with the media, even with the media, even uh, we've, we've had such bad experiences with the media in the sense that we, we, you know, as much as we try to want, you know, to, to get our word out. And I mean, that's part of, of, of campaigning work and, you know, do documentaries and stuff like that. We've we've been burned too many times. So for example, us being there during the filming and then what comes out is just something, you know, that is just out of left field and that, that misrepresents us. So for example, even the Louis Theroux documentary, there was a Louis Theroux documentary about sex work and it was about a mother of four, if I'm not wrong. And uh, she was talking about how she had a personal, I think she had a disability, but through sex work, she was able to provide for her four children and she was a single mother. But, and we thought that, you know, that would be great for, for him to highlight and whatever. But when the, when the show came out, 
the only thing they focused on was the fact that I think she was she was abused as a child or something, where and 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 not really even considering the fact that she was single handedly feeding her four children and being and uh, despite having a disability, uh, in being in being a sex worker, and I think that people really need to realize need to really shift their their conceptions um, on on how you know, on on jumping to conclusions on these kind of things and that and that for example that sex workers for example are not bad mothers and that poverty doesn't equate to neglect that it's that it's really an act of care and that and that yeah I think that that people really do not realize that at the at the core of this and this and and with you know the rate of poverty rising because of the pandemic and and there being documented that a lot of sex uh, that sex work has increased it really shows that the crux of the, the entire issue is money and is poverty and it's and it's women wanting money in their hands and people not being happy with it when 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 women find their own ways to earn their earn their means and I, I guess what 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 the ECP what the ECP would like people to know is that you know our action alerts and uh, write to your MPs when it comes to, you know, because there, there has always been that kind of looming threat of wanting the Nordic model um, in the UK. Uh, or, or even like, for example, we had a case, I think a year ago now, to which two women who were working together indoors for safety were basically um, raided and arrested and charged with controlling each other. And um, what what we did was we sent an action alert out to our to people on our mailing list to write into the Crown Prosecution Service uh, to tell them that this is ridiculous. They were working together for safety. And what was worse was that I think the Crown Prosecution said that they agreed to um, they were they were agreed to downgrade the charge to a caution if the woman agreed to. Um, to relinquish all of, of their confiscated money and, and everything to the Crown Prosecution. That was literally the deal they made. And that was obviously state profiteering of migrant women who were obviously just trying to feed, like, they were trying to work for their families. So that was what happened. And then uh, we were we were at the courts that day. And of the two women, the, the woman with a less secure immigration status was going to accept the caution, whereas the other was going to fight it. But when we went into the uh, courts, the crime prosecution immediately dropped the case, and we had to call. We had to call the. We had to call the lady. Stop walking to the police station right now because your charge just got dropped. And we really think that that was really because, as a campaigning organization, organization, when we reach out to to the people on our mailing list to write into the crime prosecution, people do. And it gives an external pressure to these kind of systems that there are people like and organizations like us watching what they're doing and seeing that, you know, the kind of state profiteering and the kind of abuse that they have brought onto these women so unjustly that somebody is keeping an eye on that and somebody will will be will, will hold them accountable for, for, for what they're doing. So this is a, just one example of how really grassroots work and something as small as writing an email to the CPS or to your MP really can help change a lot of things. And that's just um, that's just how that's that's how um our organization campaigns and we just hope that yeah more people listen to 
to lived experiences of women instead of getting lost in a love, a love ideology. Great. I think that's a really good point to end on. Um, thanks so much, Charlotte, for everything that you've shared. Um, I think it's really important what you've said, and hopefully people resonate with it. Um, thank you very much for your time as well. Um, I'm very grateful. I hope you have a good day. Oh, what, um, is, what is the law? Um, oh, right. So we are, um, I'm at King's College London mm -hmm. University, and um, we're like a podcast for um, the Philosophy, Politics and Economics Society. Um, mm -hmm. And we've been kind of tackling um, the issue of sex, the issue, <laughs> um, mm -hmm. se sex work. Um, I think it's a topic that we do in both first and second year in certain modules um, from like a very, as you said, ideological, philosophical, academic perspective. Um, and I think after speaking to a couple of academics, I came to the conclusion that it was a good idea to discuss this with, as you said, people who are actually involved in it as a lived experience. Um, and I went to the workshop with ECP, uh, I think a couple of weeks ago, and um, I got in touch to ask if I could speak to someone more um, in depth about it. So we have like an episode up with three academics discussing the, as you, you were pointing out before, like the demand and supply side. But I think this is a really important point of view to share with people as well. So that's what we're doing. And that's it for our third episode of The Lion's Share. We hope this episode has given you an additional perspective and a few things to think about. A huge thank you to Stella at ECP for coordinating and Charlotte for kindly taking part in this discussion with me. Thank you also to our team, Simeon Costello for his jingles and Mina Aries for helping me with audio editing. Remember to follow us on Instagram at KCLPPE for updates on our next episodes. My name's Alice Palmer and I've been your host. Thanks for joining us on The Lion's Share.